This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Ian Smith. The United Nations estimates that 13 million people across Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea and Somalia are suffering severe hunger due to persistent drought as the regions hit with the driest conditions recorded since 1981. Aid organisations are warning of a catastrophe if urgent action isn't taken soon. As the region now enters its fourth year with lacklustre precipitation, farmers are contending with other shocks threatening their food security, including Covid, a three-year locust plague and the invasion of Ukraine. Aid organizations predict that the situation in East Africa will deteriorate further without immediate and scaled-up support. International aid group Oxfam are warning that the hunger crisis could quickly turn into a catastrophe if aid fails to reach the most vulnerable. Kicking off Podcast 33, we talk to IFAD's newest Associate Vice President, Satu Santala. She tells us all about what IFAD is doing in the fight against famine. Then we cross to Dr. Joseph Awange, a climate scientist from Kenya, joining us to talk about the causes of the East African drought. And after that, we hear from climate and environment specialist Paxina Chileshe, who tells us about efforts to build resilience to famine and climate change at projects in East and Southern Africa. Plus, we hear from two farmers in Kenya about how they are dealing with the drought. Also on Podcast 33 is land tenure specialist Harold Liversage, who examines the intersection of climate change and increasing conflicts over land. Plus, our Recipes for Change campaign has taken on two new exciting chefs from India. First, we'll be hearing from Chef Zacharias and then Chef Dondi. Also, we're looking at how young people in rural communities are being motivated to make a better life closer to home with the help of agribusiness hubs. Then we have our third of four visits to the good people at the global donor platform. And finally, as part of our series of interviews from the fine folks doing research and impact assessments, Ifad's Aslihan Arslan tells us all about a project in Zambia where resilience building is at the fore. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast at efab.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please, rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Ian Smith, and with me is Brian Thompson. Satu Santala is IFAD's newest Associate Vice President. She's responsible for communications, global engagement, partnerships and resource mobilization, as well as overseeing the relations with IFAD's 177 member states. She has extensive experience in international relations and development. Prior to her role at IFAD, she served as Director General for Development Policy at the Finnish Ministry for Foreign Affairs. She's also worked with the World Bank and the Finnish Red Cross. I got to talk to her about another F word, not Finland, but famine. 
With all that experience, I also asked her, what are the major challenges rural communities in developing countries are facing? Right now, um, I'm afraid we're really headed towards a new uh, global food crisis. Um, because of what's, where we already are now um, with uh, climate change, conflict and COVID-19 having already put a lot of uh, communities in, in developing countries um, uh, you know, out of their food security. Um, people are, are either hungry or don't have sufficient food throughout the year. Um, and now on top of that, we have um, rapidly rising food prices, uh, fuel prices, fertilizer prices and, and lack of availability. So I think that's really the big challenge that we're facing right now. And of course, at IFAD, thinking about ways how we can um, we can um, leverage our ongoing work, um, scale it up with partners and really make an impact to build that resilience um, of the communities that we serve. Um, but of course, for IFAD, the challenge is then how do we, how do we um, collect um, and and gather enough uh, development finance to address these issues um, uh, in the countries that are most uh, hit by this crisis. What is it about IFAD that puts it in a, a unique position to deal with the challenges facing rural communities in developing countries? Well, first of all, if it is highly specialized, um, both in terms of um, the scope of our work and the communities we work for and with, um, and also the, the, the tools that we have um, at our disposal. So we're really working on agriculture, rural development, so on food production, building markets, supporting value chains, so that entire food system, that's where we are. Um, then we are working for the uh, and with the, the rural populations in remote areas, and we specifically seek the the people who uh, are easily marginalized or may not be have the same opportunities as others. So that's where we really we're really looking for the most difficult challenges that that we can we can be addressing in the rural communities. What's also unique about IFAD is that we're a financial institution. So we seek innovative financial product that products that uh, can support um, small scale farmers, rural populations to have access to finance and therefore increase their productivity, connect them to markets and, and so on. We also work with uh, both governments, farmer organizations, uh, various kinds of partners, um, youth organizations, indigenous people's organizations. So we are kind of connecting these different players together. Um, so that's also very unique about IFAD. So the F word, famine, is rearing its head in the Horn of Africa on top of everything else that's going on. How, how does IFAD strengthen communities to deal with this? IFAD um, provides long-term uh, support to build resilience of communities to shock, uh, such as famine. Um, and we have tailored support uh, that's designed in collaboration with government and, and other partners. Um, and uh, this can include, for example, better access to infrastructure, such as irrigation systems, or access to inputs, such as seeds or fertilizers, technologies, training, early warning systems, um, as well as providing focused support for resilience of women, youth, and other, other groups that may be easily be left out. 
Now, your job is is to lead external relations for IFAD. What, what is the message you want the world, and most importantly, the donors, to understand about what IFAD is doing? Well, um, in a world with with rapidly increasing food insecurity, IFAD is really in the, the longer-term space of building that resilience, building food systems that can serve everyone on the planet. Um, so while we the, the world, of course, needs to address the immediate humanitarian needs, um, we should also remember to focus on the longer term. And that's the space where IFAD is, building resilience, um, um, and and uh, building that ability to produce food uh, and livelihoods incomes um, for the poor people in developing countries. That was IFAD's AVP, Satu Santala. Up next is Dr. Joseph Awange, a climate scientist from Western Kenya, joining us to talk about the East African drought. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and with me is Ian Smith. Joseph Awange is a professor of environmental geoinformatics at Curtin University in Australia. He's a pioneering academic in the field of geospatial tools employed to assess climate change, specifically climate change's effect on freshwater and food security in East Africa. While drought has always been a part of life in East Africa, the droughts have been steadily increasing in frequency and intensity since the 1980s. Whereas droughts for the long rains used to come every five to eight years, now droughts are expected every three to four. We see that the current drought signifies clearly an increase in intensity, and it threatens to be the longest in history, and probably the worst in 40 years that has been experienced in that region. All right. So question number two, when we talk about climate change, droughts are one of the extreme weather events that most readily comes to mind. But what specifically about our changing climate has caused this current drought in East Africa? Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, drought is one of the climate extremes, of course, uh, the other one being floods. But talking about uh, droughts in East Africa, there are several issues or factors that have caused the current drought there, and I will just uh, talk about six of them. The first one actually is the we are seeing, so we are seeing reduced seasonal rainfalls, like uh, March, April, and May, the longest long rain season. We have now reduced rainfall in terms of intensity, as well as delayed start of the rainfall. This also seems to be happening for the short rainy period of October, November and uh, December. So that's one, one, one issue that probably leads to what we we'll call agricultural drought, in that now it affects food supply and food availability and food production. The second factor that uh, has caused the current drought there is uh, the Lanina effect. So we have so the positive side, El Nino, and the negative one is the Lanina. So we find that the Lanina this time around brought so much rainfall towards the eastern part of Australia. But then the, the, the opposite is the, 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 the effect towards the East African part. We have drought happening there. So Lanina is one of the contributing factors for the current drought. And then we have the third one being the cyclones. These cyclones have been persistently stronger since 2019, bringing floods towards the Mozambique part of Africa. 
but always they are depressed in terms of moisture transport towards East Africa. So the moisture going towards East Africa seems to be depressed and in that regard causes uh, the current drought that we are seeing. And then fourth, we have the interaction between the normal uh, climate drivers. And in regard to this, we have the Madden Julian Oscillator, MJO, and the Indian Ocean Dipole. So the interaction between these two also uh, contributes to the current drought. Fifth, we have the warming of the southwestern Indian Ocean, which is also contributed to the current drought. And then finally, we have the background global warming trend in general that is also fueling uh, this current drought. And that one can be closely associated with an anthropogenic or human-induced effect. So the current drought started back in 2019, correct? Yeah, around 2019, yeah. Around 2019. So does it look like the drought is continuing into a fourth year? And if so, what kind of long-term impacts do does this drought and do these droughts in general spell out for the environment in East Africa, the soil, the forest, the biodiversity? I think, uh, yes, to the question whether the current drought is continuing towards the fourth year, I think the answer is almost becoming clear, yes, because we are now in May, almost heading towards June, and the, the long rains that we were expecting March, April, May came a bit late. So probably, yes, the drought might extend to the fourth year. And in the long term, the long term impact in terms of climate, uh, on environment, uh, soil, forest, and so on, there are several impacts we can talk about, but I'll just briefly mention a few. From the environmental side, we expect to see long-term drought will clearly impact on water, and particularly sweet water or clean water, or if you like, you can say fresh water, that is essential for livelihood. So in that regard, then, if the water is going to be affected, we will expect to see things like uh, increase in diseases, like cholera and other diseases, and also the expansion of uh, aridity. So areas that were, were okay start becoming semi-arid and things like that. So the expansion of aridity can well be something to start thinking about. In terms of biodiversity, we will have genetic diversity of both plants and animals being lost or reduced significantly. So those species that we know or we see today might be extinct or might be reduced in numbers. And then on the other hand, you might find we have other species, uh, ecosystem diversity that will now become resilient to drought and start learning to adapt to live with the drought. So you may find species changing, some species ex uh, reducing in number or ex uh, being extinct, whereas on the other hand, you have some which now start adopting to drought. And then of course, we'll have the lifestyle change of the communities living around there. You know, For example, the Northern part of East Africa, we have pastoralists being there, they used to, uh, you know, had their cows, follow their, their animals and so on, but you may find their lifestyle starting to change to adopt to the new realities of drought. Maybe they may start looking at keeping fewer animals that they can sustain in whichever way. And then there's also the use of apps nowadays in the technology, so technology can also come with its own changes to the people who are living there. In terms of soil, then you have Soil biodiversity will change in that invertebrates will start adopting to the changing conditions. And then you also have plants that will start adopting to the new type of soil and so on. And also soil moisture will start, might reduce or will reduce, also fueling expansion to aridity. And finally, for the forests, 
you find that, for example, the East African coastal forests are likely to vanish. That was Dr. Joseph Awange. Check out his new book, Food Security and Hydroclimate in the Greater Horn of Africa, if you're interested in learning more. And if you want to hear more from us, please tune in to any of our 33 podcasts and over 300 reports from around the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 30, we talked about balancing biodiversity and heard about projects in Turkey, Haiti, and Eswatini. In episode 31, we looked at the issue of social justice and the fight for decent livelihoods for small-scale farmers in developing countries. And in episode 32, we rifled through the world of insects as an alternative protein source for humans and livestock. Next month, in episode 34, our focus turns to nutrition and Africa with guest presenter Linda Odiambo. Up next, we're going to hear from the Regional Climate and Environment Specialist for IFAD's operations in East and Southern Africa about the effects of this drought and how IFAD is helping people adapt. This is Farms Food Future. Our next guest is Paxina Chileshe, IFAD's Climate and Environment Specialist for East and Southern Africa. She joins us to talk about the East African drought and resulting famine. Factoring in other causes, she brings up the way that the war in Ukraine is choking food supply to the region, effectively creating a catastrophe on top of an existing crisis. Paxina also details the various ways that EFED's projects empower rural agriculturalists to acclimate to the climate crisis. So the current drought is being seen as one of the worst in 40 years. The reason why it's seen as one of the worst is there have been three consecutive rainy seasons that have been very poor. So this, as a result, has left at least 15 million people as food insecure. So in Kenya, we have about 3.5 million people that are currently food insecure. In Ethiopia, 6.5 million people. Uh, added to that, there's been a loss of 1.5 million uh, livestock that have died uh, as a result of the drought. And in Somalia, there's about 6 million people that have been left food insecure. And in some areas, 90% of the water sources have actually dried up. So since 1981, this has not been experienced before. And this is why there's so much attention uh, on the current drought. So besides the disastrous three-year consecutive drought, climate change-induced drought, we've also got the crisis in Ukraine right now. And so how is the East African food supply affected by this crisis? So the crisis in Ukraine is resulting in disruptions, as you said, in the food supply. We do have households that are particularly affected, the, the poor households, those who, are, who have a large percentage of their expenditure going to food and fuel, because those are the, the ones that some of the commodities that have been impacted the most. When it comes to food commodities themselves, the impacts in terms of the prices have been quite high. There's been spikes in uh, maize prices. So maize, as you may know, is one of the staple crops um, in the region. There's been an increase of about 52% uh, since, last, uh, since last December. The same for wheat, where there's been an increase of about 67% uh, since last December. And in places where the drought and this famine are hitting the hardest, what are lifestyle changes that people are forced to make? 
So drying up of water sources the, as a result of this, uh, women, young girls, they have to walk longer distances to fetch water, to be able to get clean water for the life for, for, for their households to be able to use. This takes away time uh, from other economically productive activities that they could be doing during that time. So by the time, of course, the water is collected, there's also rationing of water at the household levels. When we have the droughts, there's also the crop failure, so not enough uh, harvest. And as a result of this, a household's ration, the amount of food that they eat, so they tend to skip at least one or two meals. Some households have one meal a day. Some households also um, have some migration into nearby areas where they can get humanitarian assistance. So this is all in terms of the, 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 the crop failure, where livestock in particular, it's uh, a loss. When the livestock dies, it's a loss of the food source. But livestock in the area is also used as a sense, in a sense like a insurance, where households rely on selling the livestock when they're in need of some cash income. Uh, and when this happens, so it erodes that, that base that they have to be able to recover, to be able to uh, do something in the next agricultural season. And then, of course, with the impacts of droughts on the land, the, the quality of the land and on the vegetation itself, it makes it very difficult to prepare for the next agricultural uh, season. Uh, in some households, what would normally be reserved as seed for the next season is actually also consumed as food. So uh, again, the households also don't have uh, inputs for the next agricultural season. So this puts um, most families in quite dire situations and the help and support is definitely required. Can you tell us about a project in which IFAD is helping farmers and herders bulwark the resilience against droughts and food scarcity? So IFAD, we have uh, the Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Program. And one of the projects under this program in, in Kenya is the Cereal Enhancement Program. And under this project, uh, similar to others where we are in drought-prone areas, we promote uh, activities such as conservation agriculture. Conservation agriculture is, uh, includes minimum tillage, but also cover crops, um, which help to maintain the soil moisture. Uh, and so even in times when we have uh, less than expected rainfall, at least a household is able to get uh, a level of harvest that will ensure their household security. Uh, we also promote drought-tolerant crops. So whether it is uh, crops such as sorghum and millet that are more uh, drought-tolerant, but also varieties of maize, such as early maturing uh, varieties that are also more uh, drought-tolerant. In terms of infrastructure, we also invest in water sources, so improving water sources closer to the communities. We also look at improved storage facilities to make sure that we can reduce the post-harvest uh, losses, but also provide uh, processing facilities so that uh, in the communities we can have value addition uh, and small-scale producers are able to have a higher income, which they can then reserve and use during these times when they, they have uh, incidences such as droughts. That was Paxina Chileshe bringing us news from Nairobi. Up next, we hear first-hand accounts of the East African drought from two farmers. This is Farms Food Future.
Reports from the ground on the effects of the drought in northern Kenya are alarming. Among the most impacted are the most marginalized, like the refugees of the Kakuma camp in northeastern Kenya, close to the country's borders with Uganda and South Sudan. Not only are they struggling for access to land, the lack of rain is making it nearly impossible for them to farm. We talked to Alexander Mtelwa, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo. First of all, these places, while I landed here in Turkana, I saw all people say there is not possible to plant something here in Turkana because it's a drought area. The, where we reach in Kakumi, it was a very dry area. We can't get even a single rain where, during a 12 good month or one good year without a single rain. From January to December without a single rain. And I said, this is a disaster, a calamity, natural calamity. People cannot survive in such area. Hmm. So can you expand a little bit more about the unique challenges that you face as a refugee trying to acquire the lands? It's, it's very difficult as a refugee to grow your own food, right? Yeah, this area, that is the main point. To get that land, it was very difficult. Once uh, you go to the government, the government will send you to RAS. RAS is standing by Refugee Secretary Affairs. And uh, this one, to give you permission or legal document, it becomes very hard. This is uh, some, we can say, game. That is the game. They don't need to give us a uh, legal document. And uh, they say refugees are disabled people. They can't do anything. So to get a legal document is very hard, but we got this one through some organization. But up to now, to get a legal document, it becomes hard, but it gives us access to, to do what we can do. And the host community appreciate it and they say there is no problem. You can use even if you need more than these three acres, we can just give you. But to get a legal document is a trick. Another farmer from northern Kenya, Bena Kiango, blames deforestation and intensive cash crop farming for the general lack of resilience. Bena also believes that not enough is being done to help farmers break free from the cycles of humanitarian assistance and handouts. This is why, through her organization, Feedback to the Future Foundation, she teaches climate change adaptation techniques to hundreds of farmers in the region, demonstrating that by modeling one's agricultural system off of nature, one can maintain the health of the overall ecosystem thereby maintaining production even in times of drought. The last two years, it has really gotten worse uh, because the rainfall is just like, really, we basically have no rainfall. If you look at the whole area, people have been cutting down trees, uh, mostly the indigenous trees because they don't see their value. Uh, and now the area is becoming desert and uh, the rivers that used to be like uh, flowing throughout the year now have become seasonal rivers. And sometimes even they're not even seasonal anymore. They, they're completely dry because there's nothing uh, with the rain. There's no rain. And um, yeah, the little that was coming from the from the streams is no longer there. So uh, the yields have gone very low significantly. For, for many farmers, especially uh, in the area where my farm is. If you look at my neighbors, most of, most of them uh, that have planted uh, maize and beans, uh, they're not going to, to harvest anything. Yeah, 
it's such a shameful death dying of starvation it's a uh, and i mean what really frustrates me so much is because uh it's not like i mean people down there the farmers they really want to be self reliant they just it's not like they want to be dependent on uh, uh on you know handouts but the problem is with the climate change which is affecting them and they they have very little to do with what is happening <laughs> unfortunately um yeah they 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 have to pay the price and uh, everyone is uh, closing their eyes uh, they pretend that they don't see what is happening so yeah can you tell us about the techniques that you've taught to hundreds of farmers in your region which help the environment and make them more resilient in the face of drought I started uh, training them on um, designing food forests but uh, then we use a design called syntropic agroforestry. So basically syntropic agroforestry is uh, you know you plant uh, uh, you 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 plant you you mix both perennial plants and uh, and and annuals. So you don't really change uh, their their way of farming uh, very much. What you do is just uh, you know um ensure that they they diversify uh, the way they they farm and uh, so you plant trees uh, fruit trees uh, nitrogen fixing trees you plant them together with food crops uh, so you cover the soil and once you cover the soil you reduce the the amount of water you lose through evaporation uh so uh what we what what we've done or what you can see from uh, my land is uh, the soil is covered and now uh even though it is there's no rain uh everything is still green and as at the moment as other farmers are counting their losses on plant, on maize and beans uh our farmers are you know are enjoying um harvesting uh, their their african leafy vegetables which are also kind of <laughs> drought resistant some of them and this is what we want because in the end we want the farmers to be more resilient to uh, shocks like uh, drought thanks to alexander mtelwa and bena kiango sharing their personal experiences in northern kenya up next as drought turns more and more farmland into desert we dig a bit deeper into the issue and find out more about how better land rights are part of the solution You're listening to Farms Food Future. Joining us now is Harold Liversage, IFAD's senior technical specialist on land tenure. As Harold explains, most conflict is fundamentally related to land, and as land becomes progressively more degraded, there is less viable land to go around and conflict increases. The drying savanna of northwestern Kenya is the site for one of the most pertinent examples of a climate conflict. Here, the current drought is only the latest in a decades-long decline of rainfall regularity, which has led semi-nomadic herders to go to war with each other over a shrinking amount of suitable pasture for the herds of cattle to graze. Ensuring that everyone has equal and fair access to lands will only become more challenging and more important in the future as a larger population relies on less arable land, which is at the same time more and more susceptible to drought. I asked Harold to get down to the basics about what land tenure actually entails. Well, 
you know, for many of us, land tenure encompasses the rules and the norms that enable people to access and use land and natural resources. So it is much broader than just owning private property. Uh, it includes use and access rights that are held by individuals, by families, clans, or communities, as well as rights that might be associated with public lands, such as protected forests, wetlands, and conservation areas. Typically, families or individuals may own their homestead plots and cropland, but also access communal grazing and forest lands. Uh, so what are some reasons that tenure security is so important for agricultural development specifically? Well, simply put, if people don't have secure access to land and natural resources, their ability to invest in agriculture or other land-based activities as a whole is severely undermined. In many cases, tenure insecurity is the main contributor to conflicts and disputes, from local-level disputes to large-scale armed conflicts. Also, as I've already mentioned, weak tenure rights is a major contributor to social exclusion and marginalization, and very often a major factor in determining the social standing of a household in a community. In most rural communities in the developing world, the less land people can access, the poorer they tend to be. How are land rights related to historical injustice or social exclusion? For example, the exclusion of indigenous people or women, etc. Well, in many parts of the developing world, communities lost their land and natural resource rights under colonialism, and this invariably led to the marginalization of indigenous communities and ethnic minorities. In many cases, this dispossession has continued even in the post-colonial era and up to the present. Now, regarding social exclusion more generally, in many societies, women have weaker rights of access than men, yet they are often the main contributors to agricultural production in their communities. So strengthening their land rights has a major impact on their empowerment and in the overall development of their communities. So can you tell us about challenges that refugees face in acquiring and holding land? I think it's particularly difficult um, for refugees and internally displaced people to sort of legally acquire land through with government support. Often governments are not, uh, maybe are not well enough resourced, um, also in terms of them providing, finding resources at short notice, being able to identify land. Where they do get involved, it's very important that there is a, a, a thorough negotiation process with the, uh, the, the intended host communities to ensure that they understand the basis in which they are receiving people into their communities. Can you tell us uh, just a little bit about conflicts over land in areas where arable land is decreasing? With climate change, uh, land degradation, increasing pressures on land, um, are, and, and also population growth really, are all contributing to increasing competition over land. Uh, which results in increased conflicts, especially during periods of drought um, or famine, um, where, you know, I think very much, especially where water resources are depleted, um, you, you will find increasing conflicts between, especially between uh, pastoralists, herders, and crop farmers. That was Harold Liversage. IFAD's Senior Land Tenure Specialist. Coming up now, two new Recipes for Change celebrity chefs. 
This is Farms Food Future. Recipes for Change is EFED's celebrity chef program. It highlights through food how we are building resilience to climate change with farming communities in developing countries. And this month, we have our first Recipes for Change chefs from India. Not just one, but two. First up is Anahita Dondi. Anahita is an Indian chef who rose to fame quickly, co-founding a restaurant and becoming chef manager when she was just 23. A big element in all facets of Chef Dondi's life is her Parsi heritage. To document and share her unique culture, Anahita published Parsi Kitchen in October last year, which details Parsi recipes and stories that she has been sharing in kitchens throughout her life. Along with her cookbook and media following, Chef Dondi is also known for her advocacy work concerning lost recipes and forgotten foods. This includes grains that have been cultivated in India for millennia, but were left in the dust in favor of crops more conducive to industrialization. We started off by talking about her Parsi heritage and its relationship to her work in and out of the kitchen. So I've grown up uh, in New Delhi in India, and uh, the Parsi community is very, very small. Uh, We're only 300 people in New Delhi, and the larger community is in Bombay and in Gujarat uh, and the other parts of India and the world. So uh, overall, the Zoroastrian community is a very small, tight-knit community, and um, I often felt and when I was studying in culinary culinary school, that there wasn't enough representation of our uh, cuisine and our ingredients and our recipes. So um, I decided to take it upon myself to kind of showcase that in every way possible uh, through the restaurant, uh, which I was running for nine years, Soda Bottle Oknawala, which was all over India, um, through my book, The Parsi Kitchen, which came out in October 2021, and um, through my social media and all my online handles and portals, um, I'm hoping to make sure that uh, the story and the ingredients and the recipe of Parsi food and cuisine um, is heard by all and uh, inculcated in their daily uh, lives. So, I mean, I do hope that people try these recipes and they're part of their uh, everyday cooking. You've become known and in some instances as a proponent of lost recipes and traditional cereals, such as I know millet and sorghum have come up several times. And these two obviously have They faced a lot of neglect globally after, for example, the Green Revolution, despite being very nutrient-dense and despite being very resilient and having other comparative advantages to grains and cereals that are preferred by industrial agriculture. So my question for you is, why are certain grains encouraged on a large scale while others are neglected and lost? So as you know that with the Industrial Revolution, the Green green Revolution, there were certain crops that were um, prioritized and, you know, uh, grown as cash crops, especially in India. And what happened is that the market was pushed to promote and sell um, rice and wheat and millets, which was uh, which is which is an ancient traditional grain from India was completely lost in the process because farmers stopped growing this because they weren't getting the right price 
taxes for it, nor was the market demanding for these grains. And there was a very, very low production. But just to, you know, give everyone a little bit of a context of what millets are they are very highly nutritional they're a small grain but with huge uh, nutritional density and great protein so all of this kind of got lost and um, we stopped eating this grain which is native to India and Africa and uh, we only started eating wheat and rice and it's been a crazy journey the last 10 years where I've tried to promote and bring back these millets and make them cool uh, because honestly um, as a chef we have to think about the flavor the texture the you know the profile of the ingredient but we also have to make it exciting for the customer to try and once they try it at home I would want them uh, at the restaurant I would want them to go back home and also cook it and that kind of creates the cycle of demand and the farmers kind of start growing it again. And uh, I'm happy to report that uh, there has been a growth, there has been a very, very clear understanding um, with the people that I've been working with. And we're happy to say that a lot of people want to um, try these local indigenous Indian grains, which, which are highly nutritional, and bring them back on their tables. Well, that is wonderful to hear. Last question for you. What role do chefs play and fostering a more sustainable and just future of food. There's a huge amount um, of diverse work that a chef today can do, right from, you know, uh, cooking and leading his team, his or her team. Uh, but today we have a greater responsibility, and that is to be the connector between the farmer and the consumer. We're right in the middle of um, both these very, very important people and uh, you know the farmer is the one that gives us the food that we put into the kitchen and create dishes out of and the consumer is the one who appreciates it and I think that's important that as a chef how are you using your skills and your voice to create something which is um, not just good uh, as in looks good or looks beautiful aesthetically or tastes good, but it's also good in nutrition. And it's important that we have this conversation and it's important we get more and more people involved. And um, that is uh, today the role of the chef, who's a connector between a farmer and a consumer. And we're here to amplify those um, countless voices of farmers and sharing that with the consumers. And it can be like I said, through our restaurants, uh, with our menus and what we plate, uh, through the conversations that we have with people who come to the restaurant um, and sharing those things, those little tips and tricks or ingredients or nutritional benefits uh, of how you can use these things at home, because ultimately that's how you pass on recipes and legacies. So um, too many, too many different roles that a chef can play today and very, very important ones because we work with food, we live eat and breathe food every single day. That was Anaita Dondi, our newest Recipes for Change chef. To listen to her full interview, check out her chef page on EFAD's Recipes for Change website, efad.org forward slash recipes for change. Coming up now, we talk to our second Recipes for Change chef from India, Thomas Zacharias. This is Farms Food Future. The next Recipes for Change chef joining us today is Thomas Zacharias, also from India. Chef Thomas's journey through food has taken him all around, from his grandma's kitchen in Kerala, South India, to a three Michelin star restaurant in New York City, 
to home kitchens and remote communities in 22 different states in his home country. Inspired by what he saw and the stories he's heard, Chef Thomas found his passion advocating for indigenous, local and seasonal ingredients and using them to reframe perceptions of Indian food. In 2021, he left his award-winning restaurant, the Bombay Canteen, to start the Locavore. This is a community and platform for connecting with, advocating for, and sharing stories about people throughout the Indian food system. To start off, I asked him a question we like to ask all of our chefs. What role do chefs play in fostering more fair and environmentally friendly food systems? I grew up in a small city uh, in the southern part of India called Kochi. And growing up in Kochi in the 90s, uh, I actually didn't even know chefs existed. Uh, they were mostly behind closed doors. You didn't really know uh, or see chefs out, out in the open. But uh, today, chefs have become change makers in their own right. They drive not just conversation through the work they do, but they also have the power to alter the public's perspective on food. I think the plight of our food system and the changes we need to make to address them are a point of concern for only a fraction of the population. And I think if we want to fix a lot of these issues, awareness and education, which then leads to action, is important. I've seen that chefs, both through their kitchens as well as through various forms of media, have, have this ability to navigate food trends, help build momentum towards things like going local, eating seasonally, supporting uh, small marginalized communities, uh, and I guess indirectly improving the food security of our farmers and food producers. Excellent. And why has education become an important part of your work? You know, I, I don't exactly uh, associate my work as being educational. I like to, however, see it more as storytelling. Uh, I feel that education in conversations around food sustainability is something that can really only work on young minds, uh, something that I definitely think public schools and colleges uh, across India and across the world need to incorporate more of in their curriculum. Uh, once you become an adult, uh, you're not so receptive to being taught or instructed to absorb information or do things. Uh, I think what works better is uh, powerful storytelling. You can really change minds and get people to act when you get them to buy into the story surrounding our food, you need to get people to connect emotionally. And I've been doing that both through my food as well as through other forms of communication, whether it's social media or, or in the written work that I've done. And I've seen people change their perspectives, open up their minds and even alter their behavior, even if it's in small ways. So I hear you're developing a food platform. Um, can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so I've been a chef for close to 15 years um, and for a large part of the time, for the past eight years, I've been traveling across India for food exploration. Um, I used to run a modern Indian restaurant called the Bombay Canteen in Mumbai, which paid homage to traditional regional Indian food, but in new and exciting ways. And through my travels, uh, it's taken me to 22 of the 36 states and union territories in India. Now, as a chef cooking at a modern Indian restaurant, the intent of these travels was primarily to get inspired by local ingredients, regional cuisines, and bring those ideas back onto my menu in meaningful ways. But in the process, I was also continuously privy to various problems within our food systems, whether it is uh, in the context of like unsustainable food production practices, the food insecurity of our farmers, food waste, loss of our culinary heritage, things like that. And about a year ago, I 
kind of decided to leave my job as a chef to because I really wanted to try and make a deeper intervention into our food system. Um, and and I, I figured I could take advantage of the credibility and the reach and the following that I had built as a chef over all these years, as a chef who really cares about these issues. Now, um, this is true in India and probably in many parts of the world, is that there's a huge disconnect between the people, the places and the ecosystems at the source of our food and the end consumers in our cities who are driving demand. And so I decided to start this food platform, which is going to be called The Locovore, like uh, herbivore, carnivore, who uh, pays attention to the local, to 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 communities and ecosystems around them. Uh, so someone who consumes locally, consciously, sustainably as much as possible, um, the locovore. Um, and the idea behind the locovore is to narrow the divide between the people behind our food and the end consumer by... Uh, getting them to engage through conversation, through storytelling, by building a sense of community and creating more fun and approachable ways of interaction between the two, which then translates to lasting change. Well, finally, why did you join the Recipes for Change team? So I've been passionately rallying behind a lot of the same causes which IFAD stands for through my own work for many years now. But uh, it's mostly been in an individual capacity. Uh, I strongly believe in the power of collaboration, the synergy of a collective movement towards making shifts towards, I think, understanding what happens in our rural agricultural areas and, and in the context of the people growing our food. And I think this is what can really fuel positive change, uh, which we so desperately need today. Uh, and what better medium than food and recipes, something that is so universal yet so personal to do it through. Once again, you can read more about Chef Zacharias at www.efad forward slash recipes for change. Now, on to our first of a four-part series on an exciting initiative taken on by EFAD in eight countries, Youth Agribusiness Hubs. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, in Rome and Ian Smith in New York. Our next guest is Rahul Antao, lead of IFAD's youth team. He's telling us all about youth agribusiness hubs. This is a mechanism which gets thousands of young people from many different countries involved in agricultural entrepreneurship. This exciting model has the potential to transform tens of thousands of rural communities by tapping into the innovative spirit and unbridled ambition of young people. I asked Raul to give us some context about the challenges that rural youth in developing countries are facing. It's quite startling that you know, almost 68 million young people are looking for a job right now. And we know that young people are three times more unlikely than their adult counterparts to actually find a job. And globally, the youth unemployment stands at 13.5%, and almost 40% of all young workers live on less than $3 a day. So this makes close to 200 million young people who are either not employed or live in some form of poverty. But more specifically, when it comes to rural youth, there are some key areas where young people face challenges. And the first one is very much when it comes to accessing land. The second one is really accessing financial services. And very often, you know, in some ways, they are kind of removed from accessing even lines of credit. And in some ways, it's a systemic issue because you do not have access to land. Sometimes you don't have that kind of collateral to then eventually take a loan. 
But the other ones are also like, you know, getting young people to have some form of a voice and agency at the field level. And very often, like their adult counterparts themselves sort of look at young people as inexperienced or not having the ability to, to really be, you know, decision makers in their villages. So these are the kind of, you know, challenges that young people end up facing. And they are really the kind of challenges that we need to start addressing. Where did the idea for the agribusiness hubs come from? Right. So the idea of the hubs uh, is actually not something new. It's an, it's, let's, let's say it's taken its own evolution, but it's very much built on some of the elements that are already existing today. So, you know, the idea was like, okay, we know we need to have an ecosystem approach because we know that it's important, not just that we focus completely on young people, but we have to take the other enabling actors into consideration, but do have the element of financial support very much deeply embedded within it. And we have to make sure that, you know, we work a lot with the private sector in unlocking wage employment opportunities. And when were the hubs started and how many are there now? Okay, so the first agribusiness hubs actually launched in uh, in 2020, uh, and today we have about nine of them. So what exactly is an agribusiness hub? And is it a physical space, or is it something less concrete? Yeah, that's a good question, because the agribusiness hub is really a, a model that takes on various shapes. So the idea you know, is really how do we bridge the gap between the demand and supply of labor while simultaneously unlocking the potential of young entrepreneurs to start up and expand their businesses. So what we do with the model is that, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, channeling youth through two main pathways. And one of the pathways is wage employment, and the second one is self-employment. On the enterprise development or the self-employment side, you know, the incubation support for startups and business accelerations for existing enterprises is really what is we feel are critical interventions to further unlocking wage employment opportunities. So even bringing the emphasis not only to to the enterprise development side, but also to the wage employment side uh, is kind of key in to take into consideration. So, you know, we, we, we now get a sense of, you know, what the hubs are. But, you know, the model being tested really follows three key phases. The first phase is really the preparatory phase. And here in this phase, what we're trying to do is look at the linkages that are made within the ecosystem, because we know those actors out there. We know those entities are out there. What is it that they have? And more importantly, what is it that they don't have? Phase two is really the hub nurturing phase. Now, this is where we have our strategies ready. We've managed to design the curricula. We found out, you know, what are the main value chains out there. We found out the key important players in the private sector, who are the employers, et cetera. In phase two, now we really want to get youth channeled into this because we want to tailor their capacity to meet the demand of, um, you know, employers out there. So, the hub nurturing phase is really where youth are channeled through a core capacity building stage that includes, you know, a generic package of skills. And this doesn't matter whether you're on the wage line or on the self-employment line. But this package of skills kind of includes uh, things on digitization, management, soft skills, climate awareness, basic business skills, and financial literacy. And finally, phase three, and I really feel like this should, phase should be emphasized a little bit more because this is the phase that we call the post-hub growth. It's not enough that we just, you know, work with young people on just building their skills and then sort of, you know, they, they're left now on their own to sort of go out and see what happens. But 
the idea what the hub sets out to do is to continue that support even after it's uh, you know undergone its let's say incubation or its training through the hubs and here's where we offer continued support and it's given to both the streams of employment in wage employment we continue with sustained support and peer-to-peer -peer exchanges are facilitated we open job fairs where alumni can come uh, you know, in enterprise development, the support program uh, is really to continue to search for markets for businesses and offer mentorships to support youth to grow their businesses. So that's just to give you a sense of that these three phases is really where we kind of operationalize the agribusiness hubs model. That was Raul Anto, EFAD's lead specialist on youth, giving us the scoop on youth agribusiness hubs. Next month, we'll talk to a representative from the Agribusiness Hub in Rwanda to hear what it's like implementing this mechanism on the ground. Up next, the third part of our mini-series with the Global Donor Platform. This is Farms Food Future. Welcome to the third of our four-part mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. Here, we hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. The platform is a network and partnership of 40 influential donors, including international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. The membership aims to accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals through collective influencing and knowledge sharing so that donors can successfully lobby for policies and increase funding in agricultural and rural development. In this podcast, we're taking you to Brussels to speak with our two guests from the European Commission. Joining us from the Commission's Directorate General for International Partnerships are Willem Oltoff, Deputy Head, and Conrad Rhein, Policy Officer. Conrad is also a co-chair of the Global Donor Platform. Our reporter, Luca Passacantilli, starts by asking Conrad about what keeps him up at night. I watched the launch of the Global Report on Food Crisis yesterday, and I'm still shocked about the unimaginable number of 193 million people that experienced acute food insecurity around the world last year, an increase of an astonishing 40 million people compared to 2020. All this mostly caused by conflicts, but also weather extremes, climate change, and economic shocks. With COVID-19, the climate crisis and the war in Ukraine, the situation is already even worsening day by day. This is absolutely unbelievable and unacceptable. So these issues keep me up at night. And there is at least some hope. I consider the strengthening of coordination among donors, along with the mobilization of responsible investment in food systems as the most crucial area. And that is where the global donor platform has a leading role to play. I'm very pleased that we released an excellent white paper last month, which, as a follow-up to the Food Systems Summit, outlines the ways in which donors can support the necessary food systems transformation and thereby address the unacceptable current situation I describe and a situation we are all aware of. So I have not lost hope and dedicate my daily work towards the strengthening of coordination among donors at EU level as well as at global level through the Global Donor Platform. Yes, indeed. There's still much work to be done. Thank you for joining us, Vim. It's a pleasure to have you here. Please, tell us about the European Commission. Also, from the European Commission's perspective, what is being done about the issues Conrad has just talked about? 
Thanks. Yes, uh, European Commission, it's, it's, it's an, uh, a donor, of course, in, in the world. But uh, I think we're more than a donor. We, we're also providing quite some policy guidance and uh, discussing about policies uh, with, with others in, in the world. So um, I, I would think we have two major roles. One is to work with our partner countries in order to improve uh, the sustainability of agri-food systems in the world. The second is, is to engage in evidence-based discussions with many stakeholders in the world, farmers, uh, researchers, um, with, with policymakers, in order to, to do the right things for, for the people and for the planet. That requires us uh, to do a lot of coordination work. That First of all, we have uh, many delegations around the world. So uh, we, we talk with our delegations in about 140 countries. Not all of them work on agri-food systems, but certainly we work in, in about 70 countries very closely on agri-food system and rural development questions. We also coordinate a lot with, uh, let's say, our, our colleagues within the, the European Commission. We also coordinate a lot with our, our uh, colleagues in, in the Agricultural uh, Director General or, or the Director General that deals with consumer questions and, and, and food safety, for instance. So coordination is part of our work within the Commission, but also outside. And that is where the Global Donor Platform on Rural Development is so important. We need platforms for coordination because there are so many actors in the world. If we say what is the core of what we do, that is indeed to support the transition to sustainable agri-food systems in the world. And that is uh, through practical co cooperation. We do that by supporting research and innovation, for instance, in supporting the international centers of, of agricultural research, but also structures and innovation centers in our partner countries. We do it by supporting sustainable agri-value change. For instance, the entire sustainable cocoa initiative that the European Commission has taken a year ago, together with Cote d'Ivoire in Ghana, in order to improve the livelihoods of cocoa farmers in return as well in, in one package with reduction of child labor and reduction of the deforestation of the areas where cocoa is grown. What we do as, as a donor and what makes us a bit unique is that we have a multi-annual perspective. We usually work on the basis of budgets and, and programs for a period of four to seven years. And we've just gone through an exercise of this programming for the next couple of years in 2021. And uh, we will be working with 50 to 70 partner countries on aspects of uh, food systems, uh, 50 in, in more detail, 70 in a little bit more extensive way. And um, that, uh, so we have in front of us quite a, a program of, uh, of support, and uh, we would like to do that in a coordinated manner with our member states, but also with other actors in, uh, in this area. Thank you. That was really insightful. Could you tell us about the challenges you face? What does it take to overcome these obstacles? Well, there are many challenges, and I think I will highlight three. In terms of our daily work and the work that we do on, in order to, to improve the functioning of, of agri-food systems, and that, that entails agriculture, it entails the processing of, of agricultural food products, it entails consumption aspects, and it entails as well the, the whole way in which everyone works together and in which benefits are passed on and incomes, therefore, along the system. Now, three challenges are set. First, we have an information challenge. I think there's no shortage of information, but there is, on the other hand, probably too much information that is not always organized very well. And we are confronted with, with sometimes 
too many provisions of, of, of information and uh, we need a bit of streamlining. We have excellent organizations in, in the world and that is why we ask them to do some of that, that streamlining indeed of, of the information. But I still think we can do that much better. That refers to information about what is happening on food insecurity in the world. Conrad made reference to the global report on food crisis. I think that is an excellent example of where we came together with, with 14 different actors to, to streamline all that information and bring everything together in a, an organized manner. But that can be done in many other ways as well, around research, around science, uh, linking up to policy, etc. So that's one challenge that we still have. Second is the, um, the challenge around coordination. As I mentioned before, there are, there are many actors in, uh, in the food security and the food systems sphere. There are many demands for coordination. And it requires a number of stable platforms in which to do that, uh, where we can meet with, uh, with these actors. And the, the global donor platform is, is, is a very valuable one where, where donors meet, but sometimes also with, with others. And the third is a bit of a political point, and that is that in general, people, and, and that, is, that includes our politicians, they, they expect very quick results and uh, very easy success stories, while the reality on the ground is, is very, very difficult sometimes. And so the, the matching of, of expectations that, and, and I said the politicians, but it's also very often the general public, with what one can do as a donor is there there's a bit of a mismatch there and the management of that expectation is one of the the challenges that um, that i think we face and again i think when we uh, tackle challenges together we can probably do that uh, much better thank you so much for your answer conrad the european commission is a board member of the global donor platform and you're also co-chair of the platform how does this complement your work as European Commission, we coordinate our policies and programs closely with our member states through regular exchanges as well as formal and informal meetings. At the same time, we absolutely need such coordination and exchanges among the donor community at a global level. And the Global Donor Platform has clearly a crucial role to play in this. I am very thankful for all the valuable work the platform is doing including through its three thematic working groups, as well as through its publications and events. And I can assure you that the platform is very present in my daily work and its value is undoubted. Concluding, I hope there are, that there are more donors that will see the benefits of the platform and join us in the spirit that we are stronger and more efficient if we coordinate. That was Willem Olthoff and Konrad Rhein from the European Commission. Next month, they'll be talking to Satu Santala, Associate Vice President of the External Relations and Governance Department at IFAD. You can find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development at www.donorplatform.org. Coming up, the third of our other mini-series from the world of impact assessments, where we get to see if we're getting development right with rural communities. You are listening to Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Ian Smith with Brian Thompson. We've been talking to the people here at IFAD who look at how to make the most of investing in rural communities. IFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division, RIA, makes sure we learn as much as we can from the way we work and ensures we get the job done. Through in-depth, on-the-ground research with a control group in place, they measure the project's impact on incomes, productivity, women, 
and much, much more. Turning our attention to IFAD's work across Zambia's three northern provinces, and in particular the Smallholder Productivity Promotion Programme, also known as S3P, I spoke with Aslihan Arslan, who explained we were working with the government of Zambia and local private partners in cooperation with the government of Finland. She also told me about the issues people are facing, which includes limited access to markets, low productivity, and the challenge of climate change to cassava, groundnut, and mixed bean production. She then explained to me what was being done to improve things for the communities in question. The main activities of the project to solve these challenges that we've mentioned um, include the strengthening of farmer organizations, improving access to agricultural extension services, and increasing the adoption of good agricultural practices and improved seeds. And um, so the project, because it included both farmers and farmer organizations, it was organized at two levels, right? So one of them was the uh, producer level interventions, uh, the main activities there was the promotion of good agricultural practices and planting material through farmer field schools. The farmer field schools are an established uh, way to support uh, agricultural development. In our case, uh, they aim to increase the incomes of farmers, their food and nutrition security by improving their agricultural production, productivity and sales of these three main crops, cassava, groundnuts and mixed beans. These three crops are very important because cassava contributes significantly to the food and nutrition security uh, of these small-scale farmers in the region, and it has high potential for growth through improvements in the value chain. And the other two are complementary crops, uh, the groundnuts and mixed beans, uh, complementary to cassava production from both an agronomic point of view as well as a nutrition point of view. So this was a producer level, and at the farmer organization level, the project provided training on management, entrepreneurship, and leadership skills to strengthen the capacity of the farmer organizations. And all these interventions basically aimed to improve and diversify the services they provide to their members and communities, including technical advice and marketing support. What would you say were the main lessons learned from your research? Basically, just at the highest level, when we look at the IFAD goal and strategic objectives, we found that S3P project had a significant impact uh, on crop production and market access. So the beneficiaries had significantly higher levels of production and market access compared to the control group. But we also found that there was no impact on overall total income or total income per capita, which is a longer term uh, goal. And it's hard to detect right at the end of the project, right? These projects uh, last, our projects last about seven to nine years. Um, so this is the overarching uh, indicators and some improvements on women's empowerment indicators. Food security also improved a bit, but uh, the main strategic objective and IFAD goal, our main lessons learned, right? Better production, better max market access, limited or no income on total, uh, impact on total income. Um, and very importantly, actually, one of the lessons learned from this project include a crop that was not even targeted by the project. So we found very strong spillover impacts on maize production and marketing. Um, and maize is the main subsistence crop in the area, although some households rely equally also on cassava, but maize is always the subsistence crop in the whole of, of the country. So this indicates that small scale farmers 
tend to invest in their main crops and try to use the information that's provided to them for their subsistence crop, regardless of whether it's targeted or not by any project, right? So um, from this, we basically, we, we can deduce that the projects can have actually higher impacts by ensuring that extension advice provided or all the other services provided to the beneficiaries are more broadly applicable as opposed to just for cassava, beans, or groundnuts, or any selected crop for that matter. So another important lesson learned is the complementarity of supporting both production and market access to increase food security and incomes. And S3P, uh, one of, another important component of S3P was that it created strong synergies with a previous IPAD finance project that had focused on processing and marketing of cassava and groundnut and beans. So by coming after this previous project and then trying to create a market push, um, like push level intervention to the market pool that was created by the previous project, S3P managed to harness these synergies and then improve the food security and uh, crop incomes, like crop production and incomes from agriculture to its beneficiaries. Uh, and this basically tells us in, in the longer run for our future design, uh, integrated design that, that makes sure that these synergies between different projects um, are harnessed and identified early on so uh, that they can be used as an important lever for achieving food and nutrition security objectives. Finally, uh, last but not least, uh, one of the important lessons is that, so uh, remembering that this S3P promoted a large set of good agricultural practices and improved seeds and different uh, agricultural inputs, right? Um, and we find that although small-scale farmers have increased adoption of a number of promoted good agricultural practices, these include crop rotations, crop residue managements, and use of improved seeds, adoption rates of some of the practices remain very low, almost non-existent in some cases. For example, zero or minimum tillage, which is a main component for conservation agriculture, are rarely adopted, despite significant investment over the past decades by the government, by all the development agencies, um, including ours, right? So looking at very, very low adoption rates of this practice uh, at the end basically tells us a lesson that, okay, in the future project designs, we must carefully assess locally relevant benefits of and barriers to adoption to practices that we want to promote to ensure that they are truly beneficial to farmers under their local conditions, local agroecological and climatic challenges, as well as market barriers. And if they're truly beneficial, we need to address these barriers to adopt. Thanks to Aslihan Aslan telling us all about IFAD's work in Zambia. All of this in-depth research will be used for better project design and improved corporate learning and accountability. And in September, the results from a selection of 24 projects active between 2019 to 2021 will be pulled together to see how effective IFAD is overall in fulfilling its mission. Next month, we'll be talking to Arthur Mabisu on projects in India. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 33. Thanks to our fabulous producer, Francesco Manetti, and everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. 
You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifa.org forward slash podcasts. Next month in Podcast 34, we will be talking about improving nutrition in rural communities in Africa. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please, rate us. We'll be back at the end of July with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Ian Smith, and the team here at EFAD, thanks thanks for for listening.